What's up, everyone? Uh, we've got one of my old school nemesises here, Lucky Chewy, otherwise known as Andrew Lichtenberger. Uh, I didn't know this, but he's won over 14 million on uh, in live tournaments. He's killing it. Uh, he's also a bit of a yogi of poker. He's gone to India and learned um, Zen poker and gone vegan, done all these kinds of things, and apparently he's learned some secrets from all this, which we'll get into. Uh, and I haven't even talked about how much he's been winning online. Andrew, do you remember who won between us? I think you won uh, a bit. I recall um, we played kind of in the early days of your come up, if I'm not mistaken. We're, uh, were, were you playing much heads up to that point? I mean, you must have, you, you knew how to play heads up, so you must have beaten, like, quite a few guys in the 2, 4, 5, 10, 10, 20 games. I had been playing only heads up at this point in time. I had uh, switched from uh, tournaments. I presume you started with cash games, and then you moved on to tournaments and live poker. That was my understanding. You were playing live poker before me, right? Yeah, I started... Um kind of end of high school playing online, built up a bit of a role playing cash, started playing tournaments, lost most of it, and then kind of went on a bit of a heater. But Heads Up was always my kind of true love. And I even tell people to this day, like newer people, I mean, I think it teaches you kind of the, it gives you the best poker backbone because you just play wide range spots. And uh, I don't know, it teaches you how to kind of think critically about range construction and bluff catching and how to size your your bets and um, yeah, I mean, at a certain point, heads up became not really that viable, and at that point, like I was already playing a lot of tournaments, and you know, tournaments offer their own kind of unique thing with just the dynamic nature of um, changing stacks and and ICM and um, yeah, I just I love that, and there's no politics; you just show up and play, right? Cash games often have a, a large sort of um, political component. You're going to get in the game, you're going to grease the wheels, that kind of thing. I never really liked that. It's not why I got into poker, so. <laughs> that is a fair point. Eh? Politics is a much uh, trickier game to play. I guess you can call it a game of sorts. Sometimes no, it is. Yeah, definitely. Um, I view politics in general as sort of like a long-term, a much slower game. And sometimes, like, not even really... Like, the nature of it is, like, much much different in addition it's like kind of f***ed up uh but that's another subject um you answered my next question which is why did you love heads up so much or at least you answered most of it um i'm a bit surprised that you say that it was the foundation it was like the the real game where you learn how to range deconstruct and do all these different things because do you not do this in six max and and ring and things like this too like i would think that that's pretty important or maybe i'm just no of, of, of course you do but you never play spots i mean i guess like limp pots blind versus blind sometimes that happens in cash mostly not especially without an ante um but generally like you don't play spots in ring where the ranges are as wide as heads up so I think it just teaches you, yeah, how to think critically about poker. And like, uh, I guess I like bomb pots for kind of the same reason. Bomb pots? Yeah, you, you must have played some bomb pots, right? Like you put in, everyone puts in X amount of big blinds or dollars and you just go straight to the flop. There's no pre-flop betting. Oh yeah, yeah. I've, uh, I've done this before. 
Um, I guess so. Yeah, I mean that's where ranges are really wide. I would think yeah. they're almost too wide. Uh, but so you don't, you don't. You, there's multiple street action. It's not just you bet or fold, though, right? Yeah, no. You you play flop turn and river as a normal poker hand, but everyone goes to the flop with 100 percent of hands, and you uh, kind of go from there. Which I just I don't know. I think that's cool. It's interesting. Um, I kind of like that. I think there should be more more experimental stuff in poker. For some reason, people don't like to add different rules. I mean, sometimes they do. Sometimes they like to add the deuce to seven rule. For example, if you win a pot with deuce to seven, everyone owes you money. Uh, this changes things quite a bit. Have someone play part of the hand, have someone else play part of the hand, that kind of thing. Yeah, that was... Uh, I played a, a format like that, um, a full tilt sponsored thing a long time back. And that was cool. It, it was interesting. I, it was mostly like older school live pros. I had sort of just broken into that scene. So I was often playing with like uh, uh, people where I was like, oh, well, wouldn't have done that. But here we are, we're on the turn now. So <laughs> yeah, I really do think some kind of some more variation where the edges become a bit more nebulous. Um, we'd really help the games, I think. Well, I mean, the whole solver aspect, it's interesting because and this is a topic that I want to allude to later on, um, but the but the whole uh, fact of the solvers coming into, or this is a topic that I want to go into more later on. The whole uh, advent of the solvers really did shake up. Uh, they, they kind of did ruin the game in a way, if you think about it. I mean, it, yeah, it's sort of opportunity. But go ahead. So like, I. I know what you're saying, and like I relate to it, right? Because we both had, whether it was natural born talent or hard work or discipline or whatever led to success before these tools existed, I think it disproportionately hurt our win rate relative to other poker players, especially pros, right? That's a fair statement? That's a, I think that's often a fair statement. It helped people too. I mean, it actually, yeah. I like it did, I actually had a bit of a pitfall myself. I had a struggling year and then I studied the solvers and then, well, I also got into six max as well. And frankly, I don't think that people have really, really been like applying themselves too much to the solvers. I mean, there's been a number of people that have, but there was still potential for sure. Even when these things came out. Um, yeah. I mean, like if like the games just stayed as they were, um, it would have, like, yeah, it would have hurt us, but nothing really stays as it, as it is. Totally. And that's kind of where I was going with it. I mean, if you look at, I, I often use chess as a comparative example, but you can use other games too. I mean, technology as a part of our society is just growing, right? So if it wasn't Piotr or Monk or God or whoever built these tools, like that were kind of first to market, I mean, someone was going to do it at some point and it is, you know, on a sort of personal level, in some ways, um, maybe slightly negative expectation in the short run. You can, as you mentioned, use them to your benefit later on. And it is kind of just cool to be able to, I don't know, sort of collectively celebrate the evolution of the industry and understand more deeply the game in kind of its true form in a way, right? Because when you're just sort of doing your own brain solving or, or what have you. It's interesting and that's fun. And that 
you know, that's why uh, sometimes I call him like the good old days. You know, it was just a different time frame, but it was, right? <laughs> I suppose so. He's sounding like an old man now, saying about all the good old days. I mean, I, guess I mean, we've been in poker a long time. It's a fair point. Um, I'm really curious how spirituality entered the mix here and how, like, this ended up helping you, which is, because you seem to attribute a lot of success to that. I would say I, I attribute a lot of my um, general calm and ease with which I go through life to that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, I had in my early 20s gotten pretty into a book series um, that a friend of mine at the time had recommended me, uh, the Carlos Castaneda books. It, it's a very, I mean, I think I haven't like really kept up with sort of what's going on. It's quite a long series. I didn't read all of it. Um, the gist of it is a sort of apprentice type figure goes to uh, Mexico and meets like a shamanistic mentor of sorts. And they go on all sorts of adventures. And uh, a large theme of the, the books is exploration of consciousness and like uh, spirituality and what humans are capable of and... Uh, yeah, that was just very eye-opening for me at the time. And then I got pretty into psychedelics and exploring my own consciousness. And around that time, uh, I had an experience where I just sort of realized, like, oh, like, it just kind of hit me very plainly. Like, I'm God lost in my own creation. And I've just sort of lived my life with that ethos since then. And I don't know. It just, like, it suits me. It's uh, just a very easy way to look at the world. And you can kind of always distill things back to that. And it really re it resolves any sort of victim mentality because everything is a reflection of, you know, one greater consciousness and you're like, everyone's a fragment of that, that whole. So yeah, I mean, uh, that was a, a big breakthrough for me, I suppose. Can you explain that more for a lot of people? Because even I'm like thinking, I mean, I've explored with these ideas myself. I've never read this book series. I've read other books of sorts. Uh, they, it's more like contemporary hint, uh, spirituality hints at that. Um, that being God being lost in uh, its own creation. Uh, can you explain how how everything kind of boils down to that and now how this gets you over victimhood and things like that? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, at least the way that I see it is consciousness itself is, um, it's like the one true thing about our, our world or, or our metaphysical universe or, or multiverse or what have you. And then everything stems from that. I don't know if you're familiar with Taoism at all. Uh, I guess, the, yeah. So the Tao would um, would be a fair. Although I think I think the Tao precedes consciousness. The Tao is like a sort of amorphous pool of creative energy. I I think I'm not not as brushed up on my Taoism now as I have been in times past. But um, yeah, that's sort of the way I look at it. Is there's this this pool, call it of of creative energy and everyone is just a, a part of that. You know, we're, we're all one, right? Like it's one whole. And then every subsequent experience or individual 
or universe or multiverse or everything comes from that. So you can always boil it back down to that one thing. And I don't know, for me, like that connectivity inherent to all of life is very cathartic. And as far as the sort of um, ability to resolve victimhood, like if you look at it in a way as everything's happening uh, for me, not to me, and it's all a reflection of me, and I am you, and you are me, and you know we're all one. I don't know, just like a very, uh, it's a very simple and easy way to not get caught up in the minutia of like, oh, this guy cut me off, or uh, you know I'm waiting an extra ten minutes for my coffee, or you know what I mean? Like it's just, uh, it's it's all just a part of this. I don't know, gestalt of life, I guess. I I more or less understand. I, I want to tie it back to poker, which we'll get to in a second. I uh, I will say that this sentiment of the universe is happening for me, not against me, I don't really know if that's true. It looks like it may be true of sorts. I would phrase words a little bit differently, but I do find that mentality, while I don't know that to be true, it's kind of like when you're playing a hand of poker. You can compare a lot of these things to poker, and when you're you're playing hand of poker, it doesn't really help you to sit there and um, look, you know, think about all the bad things that are going to happen, right? Um, but it does help you to focus proactively on the good things that you can change. So I find that mentality to be kind of rational, and that it ration it seems rational in the sense of like, okay, well, let's you know make the best of our day and assume everything will will work out in the end. I mean, that's that's the that to me combines rationality and spiritual spirituality for me i've never been able to like verify exactly that the universe is working for or against personally um if you have any words on that i personally do or do you want to give me me to give my view yeah well I'll, I'll just mention um like i think essentially the foundation of this is your beliefs right like what you believe to be true is kind of the way you're going to experience life in in this respect there are certain things that are i think are collective truths but i think a lot of things are sort of more individualized and there's less objective nature to them and this is why i would say at least in part there's been a heavy focus on mental health in our culture in more recent times because people have at least on a subconscious level but i would say conscious level in in many such cases sort of recognize that you know, having healthy beliefs is paramount to being a healthy person. And yeah, uh, you know, people have often said like, uh, seeing is believing, but I'm not so convinced. And I think believing is, is seeing, uh, most of the time. Well, definitely the story checks out that, uh, healthy beliefs lead to being healthy. That makes sense, right? If you think healthy things and you do healthy things, uh, you know, at the least, it's a free roll. Yeah, I, I agree. I did. I did tend to look at a lot of things like that. Um, many behaviors in poker that I think a lot of people do or don't do, I think they don't look at them as some kind of positive free roll, whereas they could. For example, just having the the kind of positive mentality that you are are, are having, at least with even if. Well, at least just being more positive at the table and like removing all the negativity. 
And that kind of thing. I think a lot of poker players struggle with that because you have to go, you have to be somehow pursue something, but not hold any entitlement to it, uh, which is a challenging thing yeah. to do. But in addition to that kind of behavior, you know, like things like arrogance and um, bitterness uh, can be, you know, it's all essentially a positive free roll as I, as I slowly realize. And this is, um, it's actually on the great, on the same track of spirituality as we're getting at. Um, I wonder if believing is seeing that I can see how it can be a little bit true to some extent, because it might be the case that I, I think it might be the case that you could like see things that you otherwise wouldn't see. I mean, you can see certain things based off of, um, based off of like where your mental awareness is at for sure. Uh, you can see. Like if you're always focusing on things you don't have, then it always feel like it feels like you're not having something. So what happened after you read these books? Like what convinced you to go vegan? Like you ended up going to India, like how did poker mix into all this? Yeah. So the trajectory was, um, you know, sort of like I got into, um, as I mentioned, Taoism, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, uh, I was just interested in different schools of thought. Like I'm. Um, my brother and I were not raised with any sort of religious component to our lives. And I had just sort of written it off as like, well, it doesn't apply to me, you know, not too interested. But then as I had these experiences, I was just kind of curious, like, well, what's going on with these ancient cultures and, um, different schools of thought. I found Ram Das and listened to a lot of his, um, recordings and, and read his books and, uh, that is eventually what led me into yoga and going to India. And I have a dear friend, Akash, who lives in Delhi. And yeah, that was a really cool experience, kind of just, you know, immersing myself firsthand in their culture and in their practices. And uh, you could say that sort of the idea of uh, ahimsa is a big principle in, in yoga, like doing no harm leaving things better than they were before you encountered them. And yeah, that's a, that was, you know, what led me to, to veganism. There were some, uh, adjacent health factors. Like my health wasn't that great at the time. I had never been a particularly healthy person. Uh, not that I was overtly unhealthy, but I just didn't eat really that well for most of my life. And I did have a sort of sedentary lifestyle for, a large portion of time. I had asthma and allergies as a kid. And, oh, really? um, so it kind of, I just was trying new things and it just sort of went hand in hand with it. And in, uh, I guess you mentioned you've been, you've been reading some, some things. Have you read like Bhagavad Gita or autobiography of Yogi or any of this stuff? Yeah. I've read both of those. I've had a couple trips to India. We'll, we'll get to that in a little bit about your stuff. I want to ask, uh, how much do you think this stuff helped you with poker and um, do you think poker players could, uh, is there something in poker perhaps that could incentivize poker players to be more interested in spirituality and giving back? Because this is one thing I struggle with. A lot of poker players get into it for the simple idea of being able to win money. Um, I can see how this could slowly get to the point of, okay, now let's, let's give back as it would, when it did with me. But I wonder if like, if there's a way to make other people see that. Um, in addition, 
I mean, maybe it's just, I think it does help a bit with poker, actually. I'm just curious what your experience was. So I'll speak to the giving back thing first, which I think is, um, you know, like most things, leading by example is usually what is most effective. Um, but one of the things I really like about poker is that it draws together sort of, you know, anyone who can pony up the buy-in. And I think in some ways, while there is a, you know, very clear uh, altruistic property to giving to charity and, and helping out others that are less fortunate, um, I don't know how much poker itself uh, lends sort of uh, the desire to do that for me, and I, I gather for you too, since, you know, poker is a game about taking, I sort of need to give back to feel um, okay about that. As far as like strategically, how I think it affects things. Yeah, I mean, intuition is something that I had always, I can actually remember the first moment where like it really profoundly um, sort of inserted itself into my life uh, in, in a poker context where I just had like um, some good value hand that like you typically bet three streets with, but something just hit me like, hey, something's off. Like, I don't know. It, it's just a, an intuitive uh, moment. And I just checked back and like lost the minimum versus a better hand. And you could say it's just variance or, or what have you, but in the topic of the discussion, like I think that's really where it plays a role is just being open to other streams of information um, to different impulses to, yeah, to really life sort of giving you insight in all of the ways that it works, right? Because if all is one, then it's not just your mind, it's not just your opponent, like anything can sort of impact anything else. Um, and it's just about like how you interpret what's going on. So for me, like I like to see it all as one whole, right? And uh, anything that's happening, I, I wanna integrate all of that information into my decision-making. So that's how I would say spirituality and a holistic sort of mindset has impacted my poker playing in a strategic sense. Okay. I, I can't say that I got too many uh, feelings like that myself on specifically poker. I've had them on other things, I should say. I think I have them, but it's a little bit early to say, I guess. Um, more like premonitions. Um, yeah. Would you say that you've had a whole lot of experience? But apparently it's, it's trainable. Um, I'll talk, uh, when I talk about my trips, I will mention a little bit about that, but, uh, what has been your experience in, in like learning from something that isn't exactly, you could say is from not exactly purely your own intelligence, like some kind of collective intelligence or some intuition that isn't just from your own like experience by itself. Well, I mean, you could argue that your own intelligence isn't really like your own in the sense that you're also just learning from other people that have come before you, other streams of information. You know what I mean? It's like, we're always uh, interacting with the quote unquote outside world um, in a variety of ways. So I don't really differentiate them that much. And I think that's what makes me sort of an odd person. Uh, most people don't see things that way. 
but I don't separate them really that much, to be honest. Well, like the way intelligences work, intelligence works and knowledge works, I should say, uh, does work very non-linearly and not really as people expect. Like it goes goes back to the whole uh, idea of arrogance. Actually, people have a very uh, insular view of knowledge and think that their own world is, is the world that they live in. But no, that's not true at all. It's actually kind of frustrating in my experience because um, what really happens is kind of what, is there's lots of cultural uh, memes that essentially proliferate um, for whatever reason or another. And it's just kind of like, I mean, there's all sorts of, uh, there's sorts of record recordings of this. In fact, the most compelling one is that insanity is just the perspective of what someone's mind looks like. It's not bio insanity isn't biologically different from sanity. As a matter of fact, it's just, it's just whatever's going on in someone's mind. It's just whatever, like, um, it, like, and to certain people, like a certain people's mind works the same way. Insanity can still look like sanity. Um, but the emotions and the logic has to, well, it wouldn't look like sanity. It would just like make more sense. I guess you could say to someone else who's also similarly insane. Well, there, there would presumably be somewhat of a difference in a brain scan, right? Like different areas of the brain would be lit up, I would think. I'm hardly a neuroscientist. Yeah, me too. This one is <laughs> double check. But the most important thing is basically people are largely a matter of cultural memes of sorts. Uh, there's lots of like, you know, the memes, the, the most popular things on the internet that run around, like it's the same thing with how people live their lives and things like that. A lot of uh, uh, morality, or I use the word quotes because it's not real morality, like uh, runs around that. But sometimes things that are, what are not cool to other people can sort of be cool to similar people. This is where respect is defined and things like that. Um, but anyway, where was I going with this? Yeah, I mean, in effect, everything is, is connected but there's a lot of talks of getting something from a higher form of intelligence of like what you alluded to of like having some kind of uh, uh, intuition that's not the same as say an intuition that you should seabed because your experience by itself tells you okay the seabed is a plus EV move. Right, that's more logical and I think it's fair to differentiate although I said I see them quite similarly, between intellect and, and intuition. I do think that they're similar. I mean, they both arrive as thoughts in your head, but I, I can differentiate between those. And ideally you would you'd be able to, because sometimes there's mixed signals, but sorry, go on. Yeah. So are you, were you saying before, as you dived more into spirituality, that you became more in tune with this, uh, more in tune with your intuition that was beyond no uh, feeling when to see that and when not to see that based on experience. Yeah, and being more willing to trust it. Like essentially uh, the ways in which to deviate or, or, or even the ways in which sort of, uh, as I found, you know, going back to, to solvers, that you can intuit theory too. And when it's foreign to you, it might seem like a deviation or an exploit. But then when you sort of research, it's like, oh, well, that was actually just a sound idea. Um, so yeah, just being more, more open, I guess, was a, a major takeaway for me. 
hopefully people as they practice spirituality more will certainly become more open i mean definitely that happens although it's hard to go from like being insular to being more open if that makes sense. it's the unknown unknown right you're, you're telling yeah. someone hey there's this thing but they're lacking context of kind of even how to consider that let alone the thing itself so that's one of the yeah. difficulties in poker actually i mean it kind of does train you to be more open in a way in a bit of faster way uh and this is one thing that's interesting in poker is many of the principles of life and of spirituality can be seen through poker such as that because the same thing can happen in real life it just happens a bit slower um but if like a fish just keeps whacking you over and over you feel pretty fast and you may think easily that they're stupid and then and then you check out some some data or you look you really think about things and realize oh shit maybe actually i was wrong totally and i think that um this has actually been a recent topic of discussion amongst me and and some of my my friends that i do some study with um yeah. i think a lot of pros are actually somewhat hubristic about sort of their way being the right way and i don't know doesn't take that much like adjusting of a strategy for the quote-unquote right way when it's sort of limited in its understanding and adaptability to just fall victim to you know what you could consider a fish or or just a weaker player. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with you there for sure. Do you want to give some examples? Sure. I mean, like if you just look at a sort of baseline um, equilibrium for any spot, really, like you just take some stock preflop ranges, input them post flop, and just look at strategies. There's so many things that you could tweak to make those strategies inefficient. Um, if the preflop range is like expanded or contracted by 20%, if you node block a few post-flop decision points, um, you know, whether it's sizing or frequency of betting or defending against check raise or any of that stuff, like, and I think this is where, um, I guess the rubber meets the road with the modern era of poker is understanding that these tools have value, but there's, uh, a strong component still of needing to think critically about how to use them and the data that they give you uh, so that you don't just sort of uh, gridlock yourself into this losing proposition where you just look at these static models and you say, okay, I'm just going to do exactly what they tell me. And when it doesn't work, you just blame variance. Like that's just not a very effective way to go about your business. Um, so I guess that's, yeah. It's kind of the same sort of trap. I mean, you have to reassess at some point. You can't just like, you can't just uh, become a machine and crush. No, it doesn't work that way. Um, no. And like, uh, just to, to add to that, like, um, machine learning or reinforcement learning or any sort of AI would prove that quite easily. In that, that's not how it works, right? Like it, it takes in new data and considers how to adjust its strategies based on that. And a static model will fail to do that um, unless you yourself tweak the inputs. Um, yeah, uh, readjust and okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, smart, a good machine would readjust, I presume. Be interesting to explore how smart they are. I um, want to give a real world, or you you said what you said very well. You described this the the phenomenon very well. I want to give. An example that happens in the real world with just to, so that people understand which is basically there's a lot of people that um i mean even to this day 
always they like always bet for um they they like always uh, bet for like protection on the flop or the turn with their pairs as an example and then when you do that this changes the strategy wildly uh if it i mean yeah that changes the strategy for the other player wildly if they know that because they always like have this idea in their mind that they have to bet for protection they bet very frequently the, the top players don't exactly do that top players have seen do all sorts of things but this is one of these decisions where um well i would say they're not exactly uh i think i mean that's not what the sims would do at all they, the sims would not the simulations would not always bet and make sure that they're protected unless the, the ranges were just aligned in that kind of way where you could get away with that. Um, however, this is an example of how people like no lock themselves and thought like, oh, this is just the way that you play. And so, or like there's this over, overall tendency and just for a really long time, no one really started to exploit that. And even these is, to this day, people don't do it too much. However, the simulations really um, threw a corkscrew and all that because now people start to check raise and check back certain top pairs and check back sets sometimes and some other things. Yeah, I think you're you're speaking to what is quite interesting in that, um, like a lot of the human ways to describe poker strategy um, to oneself or or on a sort of communal level and, and how to implement those ideas comes in the form of these terms of like, you know, protection betting, bluffing, value betting, and computers don't really think it in this context. They're just equity and EV driven. And you can break that down into those human terms. Um, but it, it has been definitely interesting for, for me to see where these um, human differentiating uh, categories uh, hit and miss the mark respectively based on different spots. and. And yeah, just seeing the computer do its thing, it's cool. Like I, I really do appreciate um, that form of technology. Sounds a little scary. I guess, I mean, it's here, right? It's been here for a while. You yourself said you benefited from it and I would be remiss to um, gloss over the fact that I have too, so. Well, whoever <laughs> takes advantage of it, benefits from it. You can say unless for some reason they just lack the ability where I would say more than anything, the trait that matters the most to actually benefit is just to just get in there and just keep get moving, taking action. Totally. Yeah. I mean, like that matters more than talent, like for sure. Uh, just a lot of people just never did it. Um, Someone asked me something. I'm, I'm curious your take on this. Like, um, do you think anybody given the right work ethic, can become uh, sort of great at poker? No, but I think a lot of people can become winning players at poker in like certain contexts. Yeah, I think I agree with you. There's a certain thing you have to have naturally to be drawn to it, to really love it, to, to take it to the sort of nth degree. Yeah, there are a few subtle traits in poker that I think are very important. Um, it's not an easy thing, but one thing really that is necessary is to adjust, but also adjust yourself emotionally. You have to be willing to change, um, which is hard. Most people don't want to fucking change. I mean, do you find that you've changed a lot over poker? By the way, this is, uh, go ahead and answer. 
Yeah, I mean, well, uh, to get back to spirituality, I think that's another thing that it helps with is you know, being more grateful, being more compassionate with yourself and others. Uh, these things help in a volatile game like poker and understanding that, like, you know, just being realistic about the fact that uh, when you lose, like, that's part of the game, not to get upset about it. And uh, when you win, to just be grateful for those moments and, you know, to kind of save for a rainy day because uh the sun won't kind of always be shining on you that's just the nature of of what it is that we're immersing ourselves in um yeah um so this actually is perfect perfect crossover i was gonna say uh it actually does cross over perfectly to poker um this is one of the reasons why i got involved in spirituality is i so i slowly began to realize that actually spirituality i was looking for a way to scale personal development and I was thinking, well, you know, there's personal development and there's all these different very variations. And the more that you scale personal development, the more that you scale personal development, the more that you scale your life, your quality of life. It hit me that where it hit me that spirituality has a lot to do with that. Um, it has a lot to do with changing. And in fact, the principle of yoga is to softly keep pushing yourself basically which is how you change. And, and, and that was a bit in poker. And it sounds like that was how you uh, transitioned over from cash games to tournaments. And, and the traits that you're talking about, like having compassion and being more at peace with things, um, in my mind, when I hear them, at least this is how I try to make sense of them. I mean, I also, I also think like having more of those traits benefits your quality of life, as, as you said, and benefits you even in poker in your bottom line, as a matter of fact. Would you agree? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I, I think what you're speaking to is uh, sort of a, a more call it macro philosophical idea that surrounds poker, which is the better you are as a person, the higher your ceiling as a player. And I've really, um, I've I've had a lot of interesting discussions with friends of mine that that share this belief, and I guess it's not always the case. You know, some piece of shit people do really well in poker. Um, but I think, you know, that's a sort of a, a different approach. Like the, the foundation there is to draw from like darkness as opposed to light. And that has a ceiling, but I think the light doesn't. Um, yeah, actually, that's a great point. And, you know, there's actually movies that have alluded to this, like, you know, as the, you mentioned, like the dark side versus the light side, there's plenty of dark side people, but the dark side basically never really well, it did win at periods, but it doesn't win in the long run. Um, I would say that the first thing that you said about the better person you are, the, the better poker you'll be, that is true. But that does not mean that that, that is the most effective way to actually improve. It's just it, these traits correlate. But it can be said that per, it can be perhaps strongly suggested. Um, well, let's back up for a second. I just want to reemphasize, obviously, the more you study poker, the better you'll be at poker. That's how it works, right? That makes sense. If you're uh, studying efficiently, yeah. Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, the more you work at poker, generally speaking, that'll help you more than actually being a better person. But um, being a better person should help with a number of things. But even so, slowly, personally, uh, this is how I transitioned. Slowly, personally, I began to realize that, wait a second, the more... Uh, the better a person I am, the better I am at life, if that makes sense. It really started to look more and more that way. Um, 
and and like all these like things that we're talking about, compassion versus you know being quite selfish or whatever. The the traits and their opposites, being equanimous versus being like driven by passion and driven by intensity of feelings of the, like the ups and downs, being like mentally unstable. Um, all those things were essentially like variations of strategy when we're talking about like different strategic techniques in poker. Now we're talking about different st strategic techniques that are social or life oriented. And like now, like the more you apply those things, the better you become at life. So that's where it hit me like, wait, self-improvement is pointing quite a bit towards spirituality in many ways. Yeah, well said. I mean, I completely agree. Um, it helps with sustainability, mental health, um, fulfillment, kind of the ultimate free role in a way. Well, why don't you tell us more about your journey into spirituality? Did you have like a favorite? Uh, did you have a favorite thing that you studied, or maybe even a, was it maybe that was a series of books you said? And I know you went to. You went. Did you go to like an ashram in India? Where exactly did you go in India? So when I went to India, I stayed with my friend Akash in Delhi, and him and his family were kind enough to take um, myself and, and my friends at the time around. Uh, kind of everywhere. We went to Taj Mahal, we went to Vrindavan, we went to um, Missouri. Um, have you been to Vrindavan? Seems like you perked up when I said that. Yeah, I've been to Vrindavan. Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting place, right? Like, there's so much culture, I guess, for most people probably unfamiliar with it. Um, it's just the, the oldest temple in all of India, and a lot of newer ones, but some are quite elaborate, right? Like, you know, they're really big and, and quite beautiful. Um, it's just a cool place to kind of see, oh, uh, you know, different people living different ways of life. I remember one thing that uh, really hit me when I was there walking around. Uh, it, it just sort of became very apparent to me that there are places I've been and people I've spent time with that, you know, don't value um, money over happiness. And I never felt that more strongly than when I was there. It would just was very obvious to me that like personal fulfillment, spiritual connection, uh, essentially just like immersing yourself in that, that vibration of, of happiness was you know, most prominent there. And I had never really been anywhere else where I felt that my um, success and the material achievements that have come with it were less meaningful. Um, so that was a, that was a cool reflection for me, my time spent there. I do remember feeling that a bit, uh, specifically I went to Vrindavan, but I will say that my experience is a little bit different. Um, when I went to Vrindavan, the uh, Vrindavan is the, is the birthplace of Krishna which is the supreme deity, the preserver of the universe, etc. Um, it's supposed to be like quite a holy place, but I found that many people were like kind of manipulating that, or at least that was my feeling was that they were like manipulating for money. I wasn't a hundred percent sure, but I guess they're like super poor. So there's that. Well, there's a lot of begging. There is a lot of, a lot of poverty. Um, but even then I didn't get the, like, it was a different feeling than I got uh, from, you know, homeless people in the U S for example, like it's just a, di it's, something's different about it. They, they do prioritize spiritual sort of, um, 
Like it's such it's such an ingrained part of the culture. And I, you know, I was only there for a few days, so it's just my kind of reflection on my experience. But yeah. Uh, I felt that more when I went towards the Himalayas, uh, which, by the way, I was on a quest to find like a real yogi magic, straight up like enlightened person. I may have met a couple. I'm not 100% sure who is 100% enlightened and who's not. Uh, but there are people that I met that were at least somewhat close, I guess you can say. Um, I did actually, I, yeah, the people in the mountains seemed really, really like these people did not really care about money as far as I could tell. No one begged uh, once I got deep into the mountains. Or, yeah, I don't think anyone begged. And that's where, like, things are really beautiful when you go towards the north North India. I didn't have enough time to go super north. But I actually did find um, a guy who abandoned all his wealth and just lives in a, in a rock, which um, I can't see myself doing that exactly for different reasons. Uh, yeah, I mean, I considered that. I was, I was kind of where you were deep down that path, but... It's not the most practical thing. It's also a big change. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I think it could be for some people. Uh, it depends on what someone's trying to get out of life, if that makes sense. But there are certain, I mean, you could say desires from a certain perspective. Although, when, um, there are certain uh, things that come from inside that aren't exactly cravings, you can say, that would lead against that. But I presume if someone just wanted to have a peaceful life, if that was really what they were looking for, um, then maybe that could be like something they could do, or that's like the ultimate version of, find, of, of whatever, I guess. Yeah, I think it has to be a really authentic decision and it can't, or ideally it shouldn't be something that's, uh motivated by, I don't know, maybe like the challenge of people think I can't do this or, you know, I want to be an outlier. Like that's not going to work out. You really have to, and that was ultimately the conclusion I drew and why I decided, you know, not to, to go that path, which is not that surprising. It's pretty drastic. So did people think, uh, people think you couldn't do it. Is that, uh, is that, you... no, but I, that's something like I imagine people would think, I mean, I, this isn't something like I really talked about or considered all that strongly, but it definitely was a thought in my mind. Like, should I just sort of do this, abandon my, my worldly possessions? And, you know, it's quite a common theme, right? In, in some of these circles of thought, like just, you know, uh, becoming a renunciate, essentially living in a temple or, or living in the mountains or whatever. Uh, yeah, I mean, for, at this point in my life, it's kind of like an afterthought. I'm not going to do that, but, but who knows? I mean, uh, nothing's impossible, but right now my, my trajectory is not towards that sort of uh, life path at all. <laughs> there may be like miniature versions of that. You can like try it out and see if it's for you. <laughs> that is often a good, a good way to test it. Just try things out, learn through experience. I might do something similar, but definitely it'd be really surprising if I just did it a hundred percent. I mean, you just never like a vision quest, huh? Like a vision quest. Yeah. I wanted to do one, but I like keep getting sidetracked. Maybe I, or it hasn't been that easy. There's one specific place that I want to go to in uh, Guatemala to do it. Cool. It might happen. I'm trying to like plan it in advance and stuff keeps coming up. That feels like I should keep doing stuff. Have you read the alchemist? 
I have, yeah. Yeah, that just always comes to mind when I think about that sort of experience. Um, these kinds of books, I always wonder if are necessarily true. I find it logically true that, I mean, you can say this is true of poker too, but of life true. It's just logically clearly true that life will keep throwing you lessons and uh, you'll either learn from them or or not. I mean, this is like the nature of evolution, really. In a timeline, you will keep learning essentially, or you will keep making the same mistakes. <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, I definitely agree with you. Like uh, with the, the books I mentioned, the, the Castaneda series, it's framed as if they're true. Again, you don't know, but it doesn't really matter in a way. It's like, who cares if it's a real experience or not? It's more the lessons you take from it that are interesting and, uh, you know, mind expanding. Uh, I, I uh, can see some reasons why certain things need to be true, such as being required to be tested, if that makes sense. Like that seems necessary to be true in some kind of capacity. Uh, if there's any like existence of virtue, because virtue can only exist if it is, if it, the only way that virtue can be revealed is through tests. Hmm. Not sure about that. I probably need to think on it. Well, think about it. Like, how can you know how honorable someone is the depth of their honor until they're tested? Yeah. Okay. That's fair. That's like one example. How can you, huh? No, that's, that's fair. Yeah, I can, I can, I can see that. Um, I mean, and then like one of the, the, the one that shows itself the most, actually this guy, Nassim Salem tell, tells it is courage because it inherently, it, it, the first thing you do is you show it. <laughs> it's, um, with courage, you just like do stuff. That's the only way you can show it is you, you just, would you say you're a courageous person? Uh, why don't you tell me? What do you think? I think you're reasonably courageous, yeah. Shit, I, I thought uh, it's more than reasonably courageous, but who do I, what do I know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's all relative, I guess, and probably we feel differently about ourselves than others do, but you're willing to push the envelope and you don't really seem to care what people think of you, and I don't know, that seems courageous, speaking truth yeah. to power, that kind of stuff. Well, you seem to have a similar sort of tendency. You've written a book, uh, A Yoga of Poker. Um, I had no idea you wrote a book. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was, it was kind of around that time. Um, it was before my first India trip, but very much after a lot of the, uh, the stuff that I'd done to get in the door of spiritual explorations a lot of meditation and, and yoga and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, as far as, you know, sort of the discussion previously that, uh, links spirituality and poker, it was, it was largely around that mindset, um, you know, intuition, metaphysical things. People liked it, which was cool. Cool. Uh, you're the only one to write anything. Well, no, you're not quite the only one, almost the only one, only like high stakes professional ever wrote anything about, uh, spirituality and poker in a book. Really, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't seen anything quite like that, but people are definitely more, at least from what I can gauge on social media, people are more interested in this 
I mean, you're kind of a living example of this, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, there's just more of an interest in exploring these ideas in, in recent times. Yeah, I'm wondering, well, there's some kind of explanation in history for that. I Oh, I want to ask you, what's the most courageous thing you've ever done? <laughs> I could pick specific examples, but I think anytime you really trust yourself and follow your heart in scenarios where there might be blowback because any societal reason, but you know, like in your heart of hearts, it's the right thing to do. I find those moments to be particularly courageous. And these things can happen in poker, right? Like the idea of doing something that you quote unquote, know isn't a play or whatever, and being willing to look stupid if it doesn't work out. Um, but really just trusting yourself on a deep level to take the action that is very authentic and you know is kind of a representation of, of who you are and why you're here in a way. I think those are, to me at least, the moments in my life that represent courage or courageousness. Well, that was well said. Uh, another thing that really interested me along these kinds of lines was like figuring out if any of this stuff's real. Because, you know, at some point it's like, what is really real? Um, that is a good that question. Big, that was a big uh, thing for me. So this is why I wanted to find an enlightened person. And I, you know, I sought out, I heard of this one guru. Um, so far, only one person has really impressed me. Maybe, well, people have kind of impressed me, I guess, but only one really seemed like, let's put it this way, only one really seemed like the straight up, like, this guy's uh, on another level, basically. Um, this dude, uh, Ravi Shankar. And if you read about him, there are many miracles around him. Actually, if you read in history, there are many miracles. It's like, what the fuck is going on? Like, I'm like sitting here thinking, where are all these miracles? And part of me is like slowly realizing like, wait, uh, maybe you can tell us about some miracles in poker. I mean, in poker, like there probably are some miracles, but what is a miracle? It's like, it has to make sense somehow, I guess you can say, or it doesn't have to, but there's plenty of like mini miracles if you think about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder, like, what if miracles are just the natural order of things and we sometimes just get in the way of f***ing them up? What about that? that that's possible, right? Yeah, I, I think uh, the, the idea of a miracle being something profound and mystical is just relative to the other experiences that we have where things seem more mundane. Um, I don't know. I... You can see here, I have this like utopian uh, tapestry. Like all the animals are chilling, birds are like it's good vibes. Like that's kind of the world that I imagine we're trending towards. And I think in that world, uh, miracles are just the, the natural way. And it's just, yeah, like I, I think the, the ceiling for, for joy and, and community and, and human experience is very high. And the more miracles, the better. Uh, I agree with all of what you said. I would say that uh, it appears from my perspective, I have a theory of sorts, that there is some kind of underlying intelligence. However, it doesn't reveal itself. So um, there's some kind of intelligence uh, in the way of the order of things that 
somehow creates stories of sorts and experiences, but it's really hard to say, right? It's really hard to prove. Um, but I've noticed some patterns of sorts. But um, one thing, first of all, let's go back to Ravi Shankar for a second. There's many, many miracles around him, like straight up miracles, like literally uh, people do his breathing exercises. I'm doing his breathing exercises, actually. I went there and I, I learned the breathing exercises. Um, and and uh, people will go to him and do his breathing exercises and, and totally like be blind or something like that. And then it would, it would heal. There's many instances of this happening, apparently. There's many eyewitnesses. There's a guy who apparently came up and tried to stab uh, Ravi Shankar and this wasn't even written about. And Ravi didn't even move and the guy just like dropped his knife and, and like broke down crying. I thought that was crazy. Even when I met the guy, like you could feel something, uh, feel something special. I felt, had the feeling of ecstasy when he uh, looked at me twice uh, or something like that. Feeling of like excitement, something along these lines. It's a brief, uh, brief moment. He goes around and meets everyone, hmm. or at least a lot of people. Um, so, and he doesn't appear to have any faults as far as I can say. Faults in the sense of, uh, in the sense of doing anything that is bad for the world. He's vegan, uh, he's lots of charity, doesn't seem to have an ego, you know, all that stuff. Um, I have a theory about the miracles, which is that basically the intelligence decides on the randomness of all, all the situations somehow. And if you are at, you in harmony with this randomness, that's what doing things that are good is, uh, then perhaps it's hard to prove, but perhaps it will like, uh, potentially serve you in those sorts of ways. Um, in addition, like, you know, as harmony works, then you're like aligned with that kind of intelligence. Um, in addition, I mean, then in that case, miracles would simply be, first of all, defined by, or be required to be defined by a lot of the mundane things like a miracle by definition is something that's really extreme event. It's, it's not something that necessarily defies physics because if it happened, it had to not defy something. Does this, what do you think? Yeah. And actually, um, as you're saying this, it, it triggered a memory of a miracle that I think is worth sharing. Um, Let's hear it. so I, uh, had made some, somewhere between dubious and outright bad decisions with my, uh, you know, material wealth in the 2015, 16 to 17, 18 timeframe. And I've landed myself in a pretty rough spot in late 2018. And, um, it was actually interesting in, in that, that phase of my life, like, uh, one on the outside looking at everybody thought I had a lot of success, which couldn't have been further from the truth. I mean, sure. I'd won various events and, and achieved sort of a lot of success within poker, but I'd, uh, blown those riches elsewhere business. And, uh, so that, that was one interesting thing. Um, and the other was that I don't think I'd ever experienced a time in my life where it was so straightforward what I had to do. It was just, you know, you get up and you grind and like, it was in a way kind of, um, 
kind of simple and nice to, to really just, you know, kind of live as a worker bee in, in a sense. Like you know what you're doing every day. There's not much decision making in, in that respect. There's decision making once you're playing, but the the process is straightforward. Anyway, um, I was playing the Five Diamond at Bellagio, and I was in makeup, and I owed some close friends money, and they all understood my situation. And I ended up getting third for 800 or something thousand, and it just completely bailed me out of all of my bad decision making previous and gave me like a second opportunity. And even just retelling the story, I can feel the immense gratitude that I had then and still have to this day, because without that, I don't really know like what would have happened to me. Um, and it was such a profound experience that even though I had already in many ways reshaped my perspective about reality and miracles and, and how these, these things interplay, um, it definitely like deepened my belief in them because it just came at the exact right moment. And uh, that's kind of, you know, what triggered this memory from, from what you were just saying. Uh, interesting. I've had um sort of similar experiences myself, by the way. Yeah, I've had a uh, sort of similar ones, I would say. Uh, but they, I've had a few things that were, if you really think about it, effectively miracles, super lucky event. Do you generally, do you, do you have a lot of visuals in your, in your mind, your mind's eye? Like, is that a sort of core component of how you interpret information, whether in poker or elsewhere in life? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um... I, but I can see, I mean, I can like feel that something isn't really right, that there's some kind of holes in something. I can feel like it, like ideas of potential. I would say my feeling is blended with my logic a lot. And I'm very good at breaking, uh, separating my logic from my feeling. I'm very, very good at that. Um, and I can feel, uh, I can feel ideas. I can feel things that pathways that aren't necessarily explored that feels like they should be of importance. Not in any sort of overt intentional way, but yes, I have a lot of thoughts that come visually. Do you have like visions? Yeah, I do sometimes. Oh shit. Do you want to share any? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's more just like the way that on the topic of intuition, like it's, it's kind of just the way that I think information disseminates itself. So it's not, uh, I don't know that I could give like a really concrete example of something I'm trying to think like, it, okay. Um, in, in poker, like before sort of, uh, maybe something, some dangerous situation occurs, I see like a fiery car crash in my mind, oh, really? something like that. Really? Yeah, I've had that kind of stuff. Or, or, or I feel like a pristine peace and see like a yogi meditating in a py pyramid, like before some kind of positive situation will emerge. Really? Before, like I, I have that sort of- Before it happens. Yeah, yeah, well, you, you're having the same um, experience, but it's presented to you differently. Like you're saying you have feelings of these pathways that have yet to unfold, right? Yeah. So I'm getting that same feeling, but it's being presented in a visual way. There's also an emotional component, like I can feel it in my heart, but 
Uh, the, yeah, I was just curious about your experience with the visuals because that's that's a common component for me. Um, I would say that I can feel if I can I can feel if there's a hole in someone's logic. Let's put it that way. I can feel if. Well, this is more of like an EQ kind of thing, right? Because you're dealing with now uh, another. Yeah, um, you can you can say that. I can feel if there's like some kind of incongruency in like what someone's saying. Uh, for the most part, I mean, I've definitely been wildly wrong, uh, but maybe that's just part of like my experience to trust people too much. Um, I know about that, brother. Yeah, I've really been wrong there. But I mean, like for in poker, like someone has a certain kind of strategy. I can just tell if people are folding are unlikely to like have unlikely to like, yeah, I can just tell if people have holes in their strategy would be one example, or if someone says something and it just doesn't check out with what really the truth is. You have a good sense. Oh, have you done any like, um, Bajans or Kirtans or played any music? I got the flute. Nice. I, a few years ago, um, was deciding between either picking up the flute or um, taking violin lessons, which I'd done a bit as a kid, and I ended up going with violin. I've been slacking because my schedule with poker has been crazy, um, but I've really enjoyed that. I, I'm curious to hear how, uh, how you've enjoyed just being musically uh, involved. I... I like I like it somehow, but I'm still pretty bad at it. It's pretty hard to play. Apparently, the violin's very hard to play as well. Yeah, that's challenging. You just pick it up and you play it. That's that's the good. All right. Well, this has gotten uh, quite long, but it's been good. <laughs> I, I think yeah, it's definitely to stop, and hopefully, the audience can look forward to our future music jam. And that sounds great. The future miracles or whatever else might happen. Anyway. It's been great having you on, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure chatting with you.